Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is Alternative Strategy Assumptions and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Jean Walsh, Client Advisor in the Endowments and Foundations Group, and with me today are Anthony Worley, Chief Portfolio Strategist, Endowments and Foundations Group, and Declan Canavan, Head of Alternative Investment Strategies, EMEA, all with J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to Insights. Thank you. Glad to be here. Nice to be here as well. Our 2017 Long-Term Capital Market Assumptions, or LTCMA, for alternatives have come down versus 2016 in line with other asset classes. At a high level, what are the key drivers of these moves across the alternative space? Gene, most of the alternative asset classes are driven by our underlying beta assumptions in stocks and bonds and credit and commodities. As it relates to private equity, mid-cap and European large-cap are the main drivers of private equity, so that's the main reduction factor there. On real estate, it's valuation as well as demand and supply. On hedge funds, it's primarily overwhelmingly beta that derives our assumptions there. On infrastructure, it's the flow of funds into the strategy class and the starting points for yields, as well as the economic growth rate longer term. And then on direct lending, it's your projection for credit defaults, as well as your starting yield and how that starting yield might be degraded over time. Before we drill down into some of those asset classes in more detail, Could you take us through how you derive the assumptions for alternatives and how the thinking differs from the traditional asset classes? Most of the strategy classes within alternatives are derived through our factor approach of analysis. In the case of private equity, we can describe overwhelmingly 60 to 65 percent of the returns of a private equity composite by looking at the underlying equity sources of risk. Over time, we've seen that it's primarily U.S. mid-cap and small-cap equity risk. Over time, it's also progressed to be a little bit more of a developed Europe exposure. And particularly in the last three or four years, we've seen a little bit more emerging markets, particularly Asia x Japan. So the factor approach drives mostly what we see in private equity, although there is, at least in the dispersion, a very large alpha component, and we'll talk about that as we go on. As it relates to hedge funds, hedge funds, as I mentioned earlier, are overwhelmingly, again, derived through the underlying stock, bond, credit, and commodity assumptions that we see. Except for macro, we can describe 70 to 80% of all the returns in hedge funds simply by looking at the type of public market risk that they take. So the factor approach is the uh, almost exclusive descriptor of how we generate returns there. For real estate, you have to have a little bit more of a nuanced approach. You have to understand where you are in the cycle. You have to understand, very importantly, demand and supply. And supply is one of the key conditions that has kept our numbers flat year over year because of the dearth of supply. And you also have to understand where leverage is and risk taking is within the real estate community. Infrastructure is a little bit more tied to the global economy and the strength of the global economy and what I have described as regulatory populism. If the economy globally expands, you can see a little better returns for infrastructure. But at the same time, returns have been held slightly in check by the lack of regulators wanting to pass on price increases to a population that's increasingly pressed against the wall for a number of economic reasons. Direct lending is all about your starting yield and your default assumptions. 
And since yield will continue to play an important role in investor demand, we believe that yield will be degraded over time as demand swells. We also believe that the more money that moves into this space, the more likely you are to have an increased default rate as lending standards get a little bit looser. I think it's worth mentioning that my first involvement in the long-term capital markets assumptions was back in 96, 97. And back then, we had no alternatives in the assumption set. And a lot of investors had asked us to begin to think about a framework for including alternatives into the analysis. However, we were faced with some technical problems. Firstly, there was a large component of alpha in the return source. Secondly, there was an illiquid return profile and non-normal distribution. And for those reasons, we had to come up with a methodology. And I think the work we have done since back then has enabled us to develop this methodology, which is theoretically sound and robust. And we've added in this year 16 alternative asset classes to the assumption set. Thereby, we've addressed our clients' needs to have a holistic alternative analysis for their investment portfolio. So 16 out of 55 Correct. Um, in total for LTCMA. That's great. Let's take a deeper dive into private equity. When investors look at our private equity return projections, they question why returns look lower than they expected. What's behind your assumptions? It's a frequently asked question. We're certainly somewhat provocative with the number that we're using, 8%, but we feel very, very strongly that the statistical work and the methodology that Declan mentioned is a very robust one. There is a lot of debate on what is the right database to use. There's a lot of survivorship bias, particularly for those databases that include the widest set, particularly smaller managers. And so you're going to have some difference of opinion on what the average private equity manager is going to produce. And that's a key part of this entire conversation this morning, which is what is the average manager going to produce? We haven't talked about dispersion of return. This is all about the middle tier of the average manager. Right. So a lot of clients say, well, they would not invest in an average manager in private equity, that it's important to invest in top quartile. Absolutely. So that's why the number is lower because it doesn't reflect top quartile. Yes. Someone's going to invest in the average. That's unavoidable. There will be an average investment in many people's portfolios and many investors' portfolios. And so we can measure the average and then the true compensation for the additional risk of private equity, as you mentioned, will be met by moving up the peer group ranking uh, to at least the top third, if not the top quartile. Our LTCMA for private equity have expanded to include projections by fund size. So what's the impact to investors? It's a great question because fund size is not necessarily meant to focus on $20 billion funds or $100 billion funds versus $1 billion funds. But in fact, there's a very strong relationship, a very strong correlation between smaller funds invest in smaller companies and larger funds invest in larger companies. If you think about a large fund, these are typically half a billion dollar equity checks. These are enterprise values that are 10 to $20 billion. And of course, a smaller fund could be a raise of $100 million where the equity check is $2.5 million. So fund size is meant to indicate the nature of the investment. And on the private equity assumptions, are you here talking about buyout or are you talking about venture? Great question. These are all about buyout and growth equity. We have not come up with venture capital inclusion into these numbers. That's for the future. So this is traditional corporate finance as well as growth financing. Direct lending has become a major focus in the last couple of years. And so it's good to see that it's been added to our LTCMA. Given the private nature, how do you go about coming up with those assumptions for direct lending? 
Where do you think we are in the credit cycle for direct lending? And to what extent is your assumption driven by that view? Well, coming up with a direct lending assumption was challenging because it's a very, very fragmented strategy. It's a very fragmented industry. And the data is very hard to find. Uh, Direct lenders don't report their numbers, particularly if you're a hedge fund direct lender, you're not reporting your numbers. So we've decided to use a database generated by Cliffwater, the longest, most robust, most transparent database. And at least we have a core of information from which we can project with integrity, a 10 or 15 year uh, set of numbers. And so it's a small asset class, but it's much, much more robust when you think about hedge fund lending, et cetera, et cetera. But for direct lending, let's start out with the credit. Let's start out with the default rate. Let's start out with the fees and anticipate how much demand there will be. And uh, we generate a number of six and three quarters, which is still quite, quite attractive versus the rest of the capital markets assumptions. And is that dependent on the credit cycle? Also the outlook? Yeah, the credit cycle will certainly have something to do with this, but I actually believe that the historical data of less than 1% default will be degraded somewhat just because there will be more entrance into the space. And so we're projecting a default rate of one and three quarters, which is less than the default rate of high yield, but still the credit cycle, as well as the amount of money coming into the space, will take defaults higher. I would agree with that. It's interesting that if you look at the alpha component in direct lending, I think it's critically important. And arguably with quantitative easing, low volatility, central banks acting in unison, it has been easier for managers to suggest that they are actually generating alpha. And I think the cycle is changing. We're seeing more volatility. We're going to see higher interest rates. And possibly that will lead to more defaults. And ultimately, what we predict or what the work we have done suggests that this will lead to the erosion of what we call the illiquidity premium i.e. the additional return that an investor can expect to return from locking up their capital into a direct lending asset class. So we suggest that managers in this more difficult part of the cycle will need to demonstrate more alpha. And we suggest that alpha is made up of two components. One is a structuring component and the other is an origination component. As more money comes into the direct lending asset class, the premium associated with sound origination becomes that much greater. Secondly, with more defaults, the structuring capability of the manager becomes much more important. What do they do in difficult situations when there has been a default? Do they actually bankrupt the companies that they've lent money to? Or are they nimble enough to actually do a restructuring of that company to perhaps make returns more equity orientated or equity and debt orientated? So these two aspects of structuring and origination will ultimately derive the total return for investors in this asset class going forward. And we know the private credit space is quite diverse with numerous niche opportunities, including mezzanine, real estate debt, distressed, litigation finance. There's certainly ways that investors can seek to generate returns. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a collective noun, direct lending or alternative credit, that has afforded investors many, many different opportunities that beforehand were the domain of banks. Now, the bank regulation has suggested that more private capital is encouraged into the asset class by our regulators, and we're happy with that. So I think the other more niche strategies that have come on board are the ones you mentioned. I would also add mine financing, litigation finance. I would contemplate leasing in that asset class. Now, we don't at the moment have all those asset classes in the long-term capital markets assumptions, and I'm not hooking Tony up to a lot of additional work to do the analysis on these niche asset classes. 
But I think the area of alternative credit is very dynamic, and there are a whole host of opportunities for institutional investors to consider. In the past year, the spotlight has been on hedge funds with challenged returns and a focus on fees. What's behind the lower projections going forward? Most of the reduction relates directly to the reduction in the equity assumptions that we've produced for 2017. I took a little extra axe to those numbers to reflect the fact that the environment has been quite difficult. We have been in an environment of risk on, risk off, central bank policy, positive or negative. And in fact, the heyday of returns in the hedge fund space has been generated by a much more fundamentally driven by low security, short, high value security. That's simply not been the environment that we've been in for a number of years. In fact, the byline that there may be signs of bottoming in the 2017 assumptions is all about this environment changing. So while I believe while those numbers have come down quite a bit, I think there's a plus sign behind them in the sense that the environment can transition to one where investment risk takers can understand the fundamental drivers and can be rewarded for fundamental risk assessment rather than central bank risk assessment. We have a plus sign next to those numbers. That sounds promising. Another relatively new asset class in our 2017 LTCMA is infrastructure and how timely given Trump's focus. What are the attributes that you considered in evaluating the forward returns and what do you see as potential risks to the asset class in the short to medium term? The infrastructure projection is an OECD. So we're talking about the larger economies and mostly developed economies. And we're talking about anything from highly regulated utility sector all the way to the much more cyclically exposed transportation infrastructure as well as merchant power. So there's a wide gap between the different drivers of those assets. On average, though, we do believe that the global inflation rate, global economic growth, regulatory decisions, the regulatory cycle will have most to say what's going on. But like all of the alternative assumptions since we've been doing this for a number of years is asset size plays an important role in the opportunity set. Asset size is going to continue to grow quite substantially, we believe, in infrastructure. This is still a relatively new strategy class for most investors around the world. And we think that there will be an additional premium on top of the inflation escalation clauses and allowed returns and going in yields to reflect the fact this is a relatively attractive and relatively new strategy class, and that will put a premium on existing investments. Tony, can I just ask you a question? If I look at the work we have done with clients, the suggestion is that an optimal investor portfolio may perhaps have around a 6 to 7% allocation to infrastructure. Currently, that allocation is closer to 1% to 2%. So if we extrapolate the delta of around 5% globally, this suggests that there's a tremendous amount of new capital coming into the infrastructure asset class. Where do you think that that money will go and what impact will it have on the return profile for investors? I wholeheartedly agree with that assessment. We see the same thing. There's a tremendous amount of interest in infrastructure investing. Some of that demand will go to the more stable, regulatory-driven part of the market, which is, again, very, very determined by the allowed rates of return. And then some of it will go to the more, again, cyclical exposures, transportation, airports, as well as merchant power. But this strategy class has a yield. It has a inflation capture. It has stability of expectation in terms of return. So this is a relatively undiscovered potential place to invest. As you mentioned, I can imagine that the assets will flow into here. And in our assumptions, we have a one and a quarter percent 
valuation premium to be baked into this on an annual basis to reflect those quite attractive characteristics that infrastructure has. And if you look at, I'm talking of infrastructure equity rather than debt, but if you look at the return profile for infrastructure equity, I guess it's made up of the debt component, and I guess it's made up of the capital appreciation component. How do you weight the two contributions to returns? Is it around a two-thirds income and one-third capital appreciation? Of that six and a quarter percent equity return, three and a quarter plus is just the cash flow associated with going in. That's going to be whatever it is, 60% of the total return of the assumption. What other alternative asset classes are you considering adding to future LTCMA? Without um, committing myself to what direction we're going to go, I mean, venture capital seems to be the biggest demand for producing a number. You know, if the global economy continues to accelerate, at least on a cyclical basis, and the capital markets continue to accept a fairly wide or fairly low risk premiums, I should say, my original thesis could be that the capital markets will open quite, quite wide to the IPO window. And the IPO window is the mother load of returns, not only for VC, but also for private equity. So I'm, I'm getting a little bit warmed up to what the VC number could be. Any more alternative credit asset classes are you contemplating? There's certainly a lot of demand for producing more numbers, and we will likely take the suggestions from our own investors as well as from clients, and we will probably add at least one new variation on direct lending. That doesn't sound like a commitment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're looking forward. What should an investor look for when evaluating alternatives to optimize their portfolio return and risk? Well, let me just give a framework, and then Declan can give more nuanced interpretation. But look, alternative strategies are some of our asset classes and some are strategies. We think of hedge funds and private equity as a strategy class, not an asset class. And to that extent, they are equity-driven for the most part. And so an investor has to see this as part of the extension of the equity risk. In the case of private equity, it is first, foremost, and lastly, a return-driven strategy. There is no risk mitigation There is no diversification potential. This is all about return. Hedge funds on the other side of the equation, particularly if we get into a more favorable environment, a fundamentally driven environment, could provide a 50-50 stock bond rate of return with potentially some risk mitigation as well. So there's a whole spectrum of roles that alternatives play in the portfolio. Infrastructure and real estate, a longer term, can be inflation captures, so they're part of your real asset exposure. So they're going to play a very different role than private equity is going to play, and hedge funds are going to have a role someplace in between. Yeah, I would say that the first uh, port of call is a liquidity analysis. And I think we have done a lot of work with our clients to try and understand their liability profile. And as a broad conclusion, we have suggested that investors tend to be over liquid in their investment portfolio. And so investing that way, they are foregoing illiquidity premia. Alternative investment asset classes offer a chance to harvest that illiquidity premia. And within that, there's a whole host of diversification plays in the alternative space. And we've mentioned a number of those. And we've mentioned a number of the newer asset classes, such as infrastructure investing and direct lending or alternative credit. The second observation we would make is that it's the vehicle that you choose how you invest in. Is that a fund structure or is there opportunity where you have more conviction to perhaps go on a co-investment basis? And a co-investment basis means that you are investing directly in an opportunity rather than in a fund structure, and you have more ownership. And perhaps you can 
use that ownership and responsibility to perhaps drive down the fees to the managers. And you can work to actually customize the investment profile to meet specific demands of your portfolio, be they liquidity. The other high-level analysis is a decision as to which asset class is actually a true alternative. In Europe, what we have found in pension funds, sovereigns, and insurance companies, for example, a lot of their direct lending exposure is derived by the analytical tools they use when they look at direct lending. And they have concluded, and we agree, that a lot of the analysis around direct lending is a fixed income-orientated analysis. And I think Tony talked a little bit about that earlier. And therefore, their allocation to direct lending comes out of their fixed income allocation rather than their alternative allocation. So that's interesting because typically, if it's part of the fixed income portfolio, it's perhaps a much larger allocation to the asset class. So we are expecting a lot more exposure, a lot more investing in direct lending. And arguably, infrastructure, the profile of infrastructure investing is very like fixed income. And a lot of analytical work bears testament to the fact that infrastructure exhibits a fixed income return profile. And again, larger potential allocation to infrastructure going forward. And then finally, uh, what I would say is that if you look at the overall return profile of alternatives, I think what you're really looking to do is to partner up with managers that have been able to demonstrate persistency of alpha over different economic cycles. Because as Gene mentioned, what we're striving to do here is not to invest in the average manager, but to seek out those managers through good due diligence who have actually been able to demonstrate the ability to navigate difficult markets and generate returns in periods of higher volatility, less harmony around interest rate policy globally, and perhaps the erosion of quantitative easing in the near term and in the longer term. That's right. And also, I've been engaged with clients to help them analyze the diversification benefits of blending in new investment ideas in their portfolio with analytics on the overall portfolio return and risk. And of course, there's room for investors to customize their exposure in separate accounts, whether it be hedge fund strategies that meet their particular portfolio needs. It could be mission-aligned investing in private equity. There are a number of ways that portfolios can incorporate alternatives in a customized way as well. Gene, that was an excellent point. I agree. Thank you for joining us on Insights. My pleasure. Thanks for your time. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on January 19, 2017. The views contained herein are not to be taken as an advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from JP Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given, and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. 
Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield may not be a reliable guide to future performance. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other EU jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In India, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management India Private Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, in Brazil by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada for institutional clients' use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated and in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chasen Company. All rights reserved.